Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 1 and stand with me. Tonight we're going to read verses 1 to 8 and um, just spend some time there and ask God to bless, bless us. The Bible says in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with what? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That, that's a big deal in understanding the depth of the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the church at Philippi. He says in verse 6, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And all the people of God said what? Yeah. yeah. It is right, check, it, it, it gets even wilder, this is so good. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of, of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for this powerful epistle. As small as it is, God, it is mighty, and it is mighty in joy. Father, teach us. God, teach us where our joy is rooted. Teach us, Father, how to live in a place where we are satisfied with our Savior, that we are aligned with his mission that the purpose of our lives would be to exalt him. And in that, God, in that place, whether, whether it's hell or high water, God, whether it's mountaintop or valley, whether it's abundance or wanting, whether it's full friendships or isolation, we would discover what true joy is because Christ, your son, is the center of our lives. Father, we pray that you would lead us and teach us, instruct us, change us, unite us, and mobilize us in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Everyone wants to know the secret. Everyone wants to know the secret. Everyone wants to know the secret to success. Uh, so there's a lot of people out there reading the book called The Secret, uh, which is, by the way, um, old lies just repackaged in a new way. Don't go on Amazon.com and buy that book tonight. You don't, need, you don't need that book to know the secret to success because you've got the book, right? You've got the good book. But I think about all the secrets people wish that they knew. People wish they knew the secret recipe for Coca-Cola because everyone in this room knows that Coke is better than Pepsi, Right. 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 Right, you, you know, you can see the disappointment on my face when I go to a restaurant. I'm like, I'm like hey, um, I'll take a Coke Zero. And they're like, we've got Pepsi products. And for me, it's like, what am I doing sitting in this restaurant? I can't even believe I've, I've lowered my standards so much. 
People want to know the secret behind Area 51, right? And behind UFOs, it's a big deal. People want to know the secret sauce that is spread over the Big Mac or the spread that you get at In-N-Out. There are all these secrets that we wish we knew the answer to. Um, and then maybe one of the biggest secrets of all is the secret to a joyful life. People want to know how to have a joy-filled life. I would say to you tonight that joy is the fruit of a satisfied soul. Let me say it again, and let me just say it, you know, again so that it can really sink into your heart. Joy is the fruit of a satisfied soul. Joy is the fruit of a satisfied soul, a soul that's in a place where it's need, because every soul has need. Our souls have been created by God with a need. You know, we're not self-sufficient like God is. We're not born in this place where all of the capacities have been filled to, you know, the high water mark. There's a need that we have that God has created within our souls. And that's why there's such a searching in humanity for the fulfillment of that need. Well, when your soul is really satisfied, what happens is there is the fruit of joy in your life. You know, you could flip this around and you could say the absence of joy is the fruit of an unsatisfied soul. The absence of joy is the fruit of an unsatisfied soul. I had to really think about that, you know, when I was preparing for this because I'll tell you uh, there have been moments as a Christian when I've not had, I've, and I, I almost said it the wrong way, I almost said there's been moments as a Christian where I've not had joy, uh, but you know, joy is not just something that you have, it's something that you choose. It's something that you choose. And so tonight, I just am curious, you know, as you have your own moment in your life and you have your own circumstances that you're dealing with, you know, wrestle with that. Think about that. Is there joy overflowing your life? And if not, even as a Christian, you have to ask yourself, if that's the case, what am I looking to be satisfied by? You know, people are searching. People want to have that deep need within their soul satisfied. And you know, out there in the world, you're not going to get it. The need's not going to be met. And, you know, so I would just like to call two witnesses to the stand of that. Um, number one is the Rolling Stones, and number two is U2. <laughs> because, because, and you know, U2 has a residency at the Sphere. So if, you know, you want to go down and hear the song live, I'm sure that you can do that. But the Rolling Stones had this classic song, and you guys know what the song uh, was and is. And by the way, those guys are still... Those guys are still doing it. You know, I, I don't know, I mean... Somebody's got to be a friend and tell them, guys, like, you know, eight octogenarians, Mick, put the mic down, right? Put the mic down. Anyway, you know, they sang the song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And you're talking about singing a song at a time in their own lives where they had everything that the world had to offer. And then you too, you know, their, their famous song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There is that there is that visceral need within humanity that the world just can't satisfy. And you know that, that, that people are searching, right? People, when they don't find it, they think, well, I'll just change something in my life. Maybe if I just, if I just change something, maybe if I just get something that I don't have, 
Maybe if I change my looks or get a new job or reset my friends and get a new friend group. Maybe if I just handle my social media a little differently, my Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. Maybe, maybe I need to start with a new family because this person that I thought was going to be the one that would satisfy my soul isn't meeting my expectations. And 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road of marriage, there's this disillusionment that set in because you know you were expecting something from them that only God could give you. And so you think, well, maybe if I just switch out my spouse, or maybe if I just switch out my kids, get a new set of kids, and you might think, well, that's absurd, you know, pastor, people don't do that. Oh, yeah, they do. Yes, they do. You know, they're, my, my wife and I were just talking about a situation, and, and you know this person, disillusioned with his family, and so what did he do? He, like, just got himself a whole new family and is moving on as if, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, some people get disillusioned with the church, and so it's like, well, my felt needs aren't being met, or my expectations aren't, you know, fine-tuned the way that I want them to, so I'll just pop on over to this church, or pop on over to that church, or maybe I'll just do a little shopping, or maybe I'll, you know, pop some opioids. You know, it's just the world says that it has the solution for our needy soul, but you know if you've been down that road, it's just a mirage. It's just a mirage. It's a promise that the world can never fulfill. Because the issue is not our circumstances. The issue is what we are choosing to live for. The secret to joy is revealed in this short book, which is why uh, many people, most commentators, call it the epistle of joy. It is called the epistle of joy, and not that you need to know this information because it's not uh, absolutely necessary, but the word joy or some form of joy appears about 16 times in this small four-chapter book, and you'll see, right? You can just, by the way, I would encourage you to read it, to reread it. It's only four chapters long. It's not going to take you a long time. By the time we're done studying this book, have read it so many times that good portions of it are committed to memory. But joy for sure, and we'll talk about why this is so extraordinary, joy for sure is the theme of this epistle. You say, well, what is joy? Joy has been, you know, defined many different ways. But I think a decent definition of joy is this. It is a constant state of peace and elation that transcends circumstances and feelings. It is a constant state of peace and elation that transcends circumstances and feelings. You say, well, if that's what joy is, how do you find it? How do you discover it? And, you know, if you synthesize the statements that Paul makes and kind of just boil them down to one sentence, this is what I would say. For Paul, the secret to joy is found in a loving relationship with the incarnate Christ living for his exaltation, emulating his lifestyle, and advancing his gospel. Paul does not say it just like that. But as you go through this epistle, what you'll discover as he is uh, writing this letter of love to this, this church in very challenging circumstances, this is kind of like the irreducible secret to joy for the apostle Paul. It is found in a loving relationship with the incarnate Christ, living for his exaltation, emulating his lifestyle, and advancing his gospel. 
Can you say amen to that tonight? And so he starts out like the standard greeting. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one thing that's amazing about this epistle is that Paul's joy prevailed in prison. Paul's joy prevailed in prison. You know, Paul's writing an epistle of joy, and you might think, man, if he's writing an epistle that's all rooted in joy, he must be like chilling on the Mediterranean, you know, maybe taking a little cruise. He's got pita and hummus and, and a little wine and, and some grapes and wearing his, his toga and all the circumstances, right? You would think that if Paul is just full, filled to the brim with joy, all the circumstances must just be going the way that he wants to in his life. Some of you know that that's not the case, right? For those of you who are students in the Word, where is Paul right now when he's writing this epistle? Paul's in prison. Paul is in prison. And it's not been an easy road for Paul to get to where he was in prison. Remember, um, he was in prison for his testimony. He had been in Jerusalem, third missionary journey, and uh, he had this desire to preach the gospel to his people, to the Hebrews. And so when he was on the Temple Mount, you remember, there was this riot happening because wherever Paul went, there seemed to be a riot that ensued. He just was that kind of guy. They were almost tearing him apart. And so soldiers from the Antonio Fortress came down onto the Temple Mount and they pulled Paul away. And while they're pulling him up to the Antonio Fortress, Paul's like, hey, this is my, you know, this is my version of it. Hey, I, uh, I want to speak. I'm a Hebrew and I want to speak to my countrymen. And so Paul has that moment, right, on the Temple Mount, tens of thousands of people, and he's, he's preaching, he's speaking the gospel, and then when he gets to the point talking about his personal testimony, where he is relaying the reality of Christ's commission to him, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, it's, I mean, pandemonium breaks out, you know, multiple times worse than what had happened before. And so Paul is taken, you know, he's in the Antonia Fortress. You guys remember how the story goes. He goes down to Caesarea by the sea. He's held there for two years. And, uh, you know, the various governors seeking to uh, extort money from Paul. And Paul finally says, he makes his appeal to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, he had a right to this. He also, you know, had a desire to go to Rome all along. When Paul planted churches, man, he was a wise man who planted churches in strategic locations. He cared about the villages and the townships, but he also cared about the significant cities that had regional importance, which is why he planted in Corinth and why he planted in Ephesus and why he planted in Philippi. But his desire was to be in Rome. And so, you know, as you read the story, and you can go back in the book of Acts and check this out, he makes his way via ship, uh, very difficult, through storms and through shipwreck, and he's on uh, the island of Malta. He gets snake bitten. Um, you know, he shares the gospel with the person who was responsible for overseeing uh, the island. That person responds to the gospel, gets saved. He finally ends up in Rome and he's in Rome for a number of years under house arrest. And the way house arrest would have worked was that Paul would have been 24 hours a day chained to Roman soldiers. 
And you can imagine, you, you, could you imagine being the Roman soldier that's got the duty to, to be chained to the Apostle Paul? You know, those guys got probably born again so quickly. It's like, all right, dude, would you just shut up? I believe in Jesus already. And so while Paul's under house arrest, his heart is still beating for the people of God. You know, while he's under house arrest, and this is just what I do appreciate, appreciate about the apostle so much, and you see this in these verses, he is reflecting, he is remembering, he's considering these churches that were so important to him. He wrote four epistles from prison, uh, Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon, you know, and Philippians. He had the people of God upon his heart. He's talking about remembering them from prison. He's thinking about the planting of this church. He remembers when he was crossing Asia Minor and he wanted to go north into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't permit him. And Paul was a man, Paul was a man that was led by God. I wonder tonight, are you led by God? Paul was a man who was led by God. Paul wasn't like just out to fulfill his own agenda. Paul wasn't the guy who was just doing what he wanted to do and then asking God to bless it. Because you know that's the way we are. We're just like doing our thing. We're doing our thing and we're like, hey God, bless, bless the thing I'm doing. And God's like, hey, how about you stop and pray and ask me what you should be doing? How about you push pause and wait on me to speak to your heart and then you follow me. You know, I, got, I just got to confess to you guys, when I gave my life to Christ, I was so zealous. I was so zealous to follow Jesus and so zealous about the mission that I was like out in front. I was out in front of him. And I remember, I remember just the conviction of the Holy Spirit when God spoke to me and he said, have I called you to follow me or are you just choosing to live your life in a way where I'm following you? And I'm like, man, I've got this, I've got this spun around a little bit. And sometimes I still can get so zealous for the mission that, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm just ready to go. But the Apostle Paul was so tender to the Spirit of God that when the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going into Bithynia, Paul waited and then there was the vision that he had of the Macedonian man while he was at Troas. And, and you remember the story, he made his way. He just continued heading west. He crossed over the Aegean Sea. He went to Amphipolis and then he went to Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, very significant city, lots of history for Rome. Um, if you lived in Philippi, you were, it was like living in Rome. They called it a little Rome. You were automatically granted citizenship. It was a place where soldiers would retire um, to and just enjoy the fruits of their labor. And so Paul ends up in Philippi, and he's thinking about this, right? He's reflecting on this. He's remembering the, the church plant. Maybe of all the churches that Paul planted, the story at Philippi is the best. And you can check out Acts chapter 16 later on. But he rolls into Philippi. Philippi is filled with Roman um, citizens, and you know, Paul, when he went into a city to preach the gospel, where did he always go first? Where did he go first? Where did he go first? He went to the synagogue, right? Because the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Greek. Well, there was no synagogue, which meant that there were not 11 Jewish men in the city. And so he knew that there would be women that were gathering together for prayer on the Sabbath, and he found them by the riverside. And one of those women 
Uh, her name was Lydia. She was a wealthy woman. She, she was from Thyatira. She dwelt in um, textiles, purple textiles, which were, you know, very important during that era. And she gave her life to Christ. She was born again right there. Paul continues ministering. He's in the marketplace. He's sharing the gospel. There's a little demon-possessed girl that's following him around, mocking him and mocking his message. And, you know, Paul just couldn't handle it anymore. So like you, he turned around, like you do with people that you just can't stand anymore. You turn around, you exercise the demon from them, right? <laughs> That's what, you're like, I'd, I'd like to do that. I'd like, starting with my boss, man. You're like, you're thinking tonight, man, God, you really spoke to me. My boss is demon possessed. I know exactly what I'm going to do tomorrow. <laughs> Email me, let me know how that goes, all right? <laughs> so, so Paul, you know, exercises the, the demon from this girl, uh, there were people making money off of this situation. Their revenue stream through this demon-possessed girl who evidently had demonic powers was immediately taken away. They weren't happy about that, and so they had Paul and Silas incarcerated. They were beaten with rods, and then they were put in the prison at Philippi in the lowest part of the prison, in the dungeon. They were locked in stocks. And so the picture of that is that possibly, you know, their head and their hands were locked in this wooden contraption. Sometimes your feet would be locked into a wooden contraption as well. I mean, it was a form of torture. And it was the lowest part of the dungeon. And so, you know, most likely all the excrement from all of the other prison cells were draining into, you know, this place where Paul and Silas were. And you guys know the story. What were they doing? They were singing hymns and praising God and praying. Like, that, if that doesn't say something about the character of Paul and Silas and where they found their satisfaction, I don't know what does. And while they're praying and, and as they're praising, how are you handling the difficulty in your life right now? I just want to ask you. How am I handling the difficulty in my life? Sam was leading us in that song tonight, like, we will praise you anywhere. Man, wasn't that good? We will praise him anywhere. We will praise him at any time. We will praise him in any circumstance, in any situation. Can I just say to you today, and I need to hear this as much for myself as you need to hear this, there's power in praise. There is power in praise. There is something that happens when you stop luxuriating in your own self-pity because you know what a mess that can be, right? You know what a mess it can be. You luxuriate. I luxuriate, and, and, and we do this in our own self-pity. We're inward-focused. Paul could have been inward-focused here. He could have been lamenting in the circumstance that he was in in Rome. He could have been lamenting in the circumstance that he was at in Philippi. But he wasn't lamenting, he wasn't luxuriating in his own self-centeredness. He was praying and giving praise, he was encouraging other people. You guys know the story. There's an earthquake, the prison doors are opened up, and God does a mighty work. And ultimately, Paul and Silas lead that Roman soldier who was overseeing the jail to faith in Christ. So he's just reflecting, all of that to say, man, he's just reflecting. 
right? He starts out this introduction just with a reflection of everything that had happened in Philippi. And there was this friendship and gratitude that Paul had for all of the people and also for the overseers and the deacons. And I think, you know, it's important just to notice Paul and, and Timothy obviously will unpack later on, you know, that apostolic aspect, um, you know, as he introduces himself but it's just important to note that Paul is saying he does make some sort of distinction, right, to the people, to the overseers, to the deacons. He's just saying, hey, man, this epistle's for you all. It's for you all. Like, don't ever be in a place in your life where you become, where you are above the Word of God. Don't ever be in a place in your life where you've just excelled so far in your pastoral calling as an overseer in the church, as a worship leader, as a deacon, you've got all of this experience underneath your belt and you've done so many things, you can start to think, man, well, you know, that's for everybody else because everyone else is down here and, you know, I have excelled to this point. I think the way Paul puts this is just a reminder, hey, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It's level. We're never in a place where we're above the exhortation, encouragement, rebuke of the Word of God. And so, you know, Paul Paul expresses his friendship, his gratitude, the significance of God's word. Paul calls himself a doulos, a servant. And, you know, I think that that conveys three things. I think it conveys appropriate distance, right? A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it conveys appropriate distance. It's like we know Paul saying, I know who I am and I know who he is. I know who I am. And I know who he is. Now, some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, pastor. Like, he's also humanity. He came and he was numbered with the transgressors. He, he came as one of us. He's, there's no one more relevant to us than Jesus Christ. That is, that is true. But remember, not only is he the son of man, he's the son of God. And there's a transcendence to him. And there's a superiority to him. And there's a worthiness not only for us to identify with him and him with us, but for us to, to worship him and honor him. And I think that, you know, this phrase, servant of the Lord, can I ask you tonight, are you a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do, 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 you, do you have a problem with that designation? I mean, it's good, right? It acknowledges the distance, who he is and who we are. It acknowledges that distinction, which I think is so important, never forget He's not just the son of man, he's the son of God. And then I also think it conveys dependence because a servant is absolutely and in every way dependent upon the master. And so here, here Paul is 11 years after the planting of the church. 11 years ago, he was in prison. 11 years later, he's in prison again. And his heart is filled with joy. James Chapter 1, verse 2 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And so there was a, a prevalence of joy while Paul was in prison. But in addition to that, what we see in the following verses is a prayer of thanksgiving. A prayer of thanksgiving. I want to remind you guys tonight that, that gratitude is the outflow of joy. Gratitude is the outflow of joy. In fact, joyful gratitude, 
Paul had joyful gratitude in prayer because of the work of the gospel in the lives of the people in Philippi. He says this in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Let me just read it again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Let me just say that again. For you Yeah. Yeah, for, for y'all. You're like, yeah, he was from the South, wasn't he? Well, you know, there were, there were some people in Philippi that were not easy people. There was some division in, in Philippi. There were some difficult people, and yet Paul's like, hey, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So there was a, a fullness of joy for the Apostle Paul because of the partnership that they had in the gospel. Remember the word gospel, euangelion, it means the good news. This was Paul's ministry. Paul was all about preaching the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, the good news. He was a herald. He was somebody who declared. Like back in the day in Rome, when there was victory on the battlefield, there would be somebody who would herald throughout the Roman Empire the great victory that had just been accomplished. That person would bring the good news. That, that person would be preaching the good news. And so Paul's like, man, if there's any good news, the good news is this. God has sent his only begotten son. That's when you guys. That is the message, right? The apostle Paul never got tired of that message. For Paul, the good news never became the old news. For Paul, it was like, man, this was the driving force behind everything that he did. For Paul, this was the framework, the lens through which he saw the world. For the, for the apostle Paul, when he was considering, considering history from his point in time, all of history, the epicenter of history was rooted in the person of Christ that God had intended immediately after the fall. And of course, we know this is, was predetermined by God before the foundation of the world. But immediately after the fall, what does God do? As he is speaking the curse, he gives the promise that from the seed of the woman, there would come one who would overcome the serpent and would crush the head of the serpent. And then, of course, you follow the story through the book of Genesis as out of all of the nation, nations, God chooses Abraham and Sarah and from Abraham and Sarah, he creates a nation. And from that nation, he chooses a tribe. And from that tribe, he chooses a family through which to bring his Messiah, the anointed one, who would ultimately redeem humanity and the creation from the curse. That was the message that Paul had. And it was the message that Paul preached in Philippi. It was the message that Paul preached while he was in prison and Paul, of course, probably reflecting on that moment, you remember as the prison doors were shaken open, maybe tonight you need, you need some shaking so that the, the doors that have closed on your life can be opened. God can do that tonight. I want to tell you, make sure you're making your prayer to him and praising him. But as it happened, the Roman soldier, knowing that his life would be forfeit if, if any of these 
prisoners escaped. He's about to kill himself. And Paul says, stay your hand. Stop what you're doing. And in the dialogue, the Roman soldier says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, and Paul said, well, listen, these are the steps that you have to walk through. These are the hoops that you have to jump through. Paul's like, you know, find a good church and uh, attend church for a while and get, make sure you're water baptized and make sure you're taking um, the basics, basics course and plug into a life group and make sure you're giving financially. Those are some good steps for you to take and maybe if you take those steps, you can be saved too. That wasn't Paul's message. Paul and Silas said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's just, man, it's so good. It's so good to reflect on that because you know what we do, y'all, we, we complicate it. We complicate it. We complicate our own lives. We encumber ourselves with works and our efforts. And I'm not saying that works and effort isn't important. It is important, but it doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. We can start to encumber our own faith and add all these things to it. And then pretty soon we're like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I just wish people could just be born again. But the truth is this, you know, you've got to get some change in your life and you've got to kick those bad habits and you've got to perfect yourself and you've got to start coming to church and maybe you need to put your kids in our Christian school and we encumber the good, none of that is good news. None of that is good news. The good news is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know, and sometimes in some circles, the response to that is, well, you know what? That's easy believism. And I say, thank God for easy believism. Thank God that he has made it easy. You know, obviously, transformation comes with that because sanctification is something that God works through our whole life. But man, the message was preached in such a strong way. And the rejoice, the the response the bible says of this soldier chapter 16 verse 34 was this he rejoiced believing in god with his whole house the answer for him as he believed was that his heart his life was filled with joy paul's like hey i just want to say i'm joyful i'm joyful and and filled with gratitude in prayer because of the partnership we have in the gospel from the very beginning you guys are part of the community of believers. You're part of the family of God. And as I'm remembering those initial moments, I just want to, I want to say that I'm thankful to God for all of you and the good work that he's done in your life. And then in addition to that, the word partnership here, the Greek word koinonia, also means that they joined Paul in the work of the ministry. You know, the church at Philippi, was the only church that regularly and consistently supported financially the Apostle Paul. It was the only church of all the churches Paul planted. Some of you, that might blow your mind because you, you might think, man, you would expect the people of God to show more affection and commitment to the one that was faithful to bring them the gospel. But there was only one church. It was the church at Philippi. And this gift had come through the hand of Epaphroditus, who was uh, from Philippi, he had come to the apostle Paul with this financial gift, and the journey from Philippi to Rome to bless Paul 
almost cost this guy his life. Later on, Paul is going to just express his esteem for Epaphroditus because he was willing to serve God even in the midst of his own physical suffering. But the partnership here um, isn't just that they're part of the fellowship or community of believers, it's that they were engaged financially in um, Paul's preaching of the gospel. And then I also think as, as we consider these verses that the fullness of joy produced a constancy in prayer. The fullness of joy in Paul's life produced a constancy in prayer. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just prayer that God would relieve him from his circumstances. It was prayer that was laced with gratitude. You know, dissatisfaction in life produces ingratitude satisfaction in life produces gratitude when we're dissatisfied when we're disillusioned you know when we're anchored to something other than what god wants us to be anchored to you know when we're trying to find our life from things that can't supply it the result inevitably is that we're going to be people that will be living with an attitude of ingratitude but you know that when Christ is the center of our lives and we're, we're seeking to esteem him and exalt him and we're on the mission that he has for us, the produce of that is gratitude. He goes on to say, not only am I grateful for what God did initially in your life, but I'm thankful for how he has been faithful even up to this moment, verse six. And I'm sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a good one. That's a good one. Can I remind you tonight that Jesus finishes what he starts? He finishes what he starts. I know that might be kind of a, that might be something that takes you by surprise because very few people today finish what they start. You know, very few people finish their marriage well. Very few people finish projects well. Very few pastors finish ministry well. We're used to people not finishing well. I want to just encourage you so that you can take heart tonight. Jesus finishes what he starts, right? Have peace in that. You know, Paul says it this way, the good work, I'm confident that the good work that he began in your life, hey, there's no argument. There's no argument over this. If you're a believer in Christ tonight, it's because he began the good work. You know, if you had kids, if you have kids, you know, oftentimes they'll get in a fight and you'll, you'll roll into the scene as a parent and you're like, who started this? And then it's all the finger pointing, she did it, no, he did it, no, they did it. And, you know, there's no argument over this. In our relationship with God, he started it. He started it. He started it. He's the one who initiated it. He is the author. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, he is the author of this good work that he has begun. Being reminded of the reality of that is the place of rest and peace and comfort for your soul. And as he is the one who has started it, make sure you are allowing him to be the one who perfects it or finishes it. You know, he is faithful to leave no task unfinished. By that, I simply mean this. He is not only going to shape you and perfect you into his image, he is going to safely see you home to heaven. He is going to safely, 
see you home to heaven. You know, you wonder, we're going to get there. Are we ever going to, you, I don't know if it's like this for you, but man, you go on a long road trip and it's like, man, are we ever going to get there? Maybe we're not going to get there. I want to tell you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are going to get there. He is going to complete it. He's going to bring you to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where the Bible says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Never forget it. He's going to bring you all the way home. And finally tonight, verse 7, the Bible says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because, and I just deeply appreciate what he says here, I hold you in my heart. <laughs> Dad Paul, he's so cute, that, that guy. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, just reading this, right? It is right for me to feel this way because I hold you in my heart. Because I hold you in my heart. He doesn't say, I hold you on my heart. He doesn't say, because you've gotten on my nerves. <laughs> Any Christians get on your nerves lately? Right? You're like, yeah, Pastor, you, man. And I was, <laughs> I was just going to write you an email to let you know how. You know, sometimes when we look at the body of Christ, like, these are not terms that we would use for the people of God. Paul's saying, I hold you. I hold you. I hold you in my heart. Some of us, you know, we live so distantly from others. It's like, yeah, that person's on my heart. They're near my heart. They're, they're kind of close to my heart. You have associations within the church. You're semi-connected to the people of God, but there's a distance between you and God's people. And maybe it's worse than that. Maybe for you, it's like, man, Christians, y'all, I'm a Christian, but y'all just seem to get on my nerves all the time. Like, you can barely stand the people of God. It is a miracle that you're sitting here tonight because there are so many Christians that just get on your nerves. Can I tell you that Christians get on my nerves too? <laughs> they do. They do. And, and, and this portion of Scripture was just so good and convicting for me personally, because you know, as a pastor, like we are knee deep in people's stuff all the time. We're knee deep in the conflict and the division within the church and the, the petty things that people argue over and fight over. We're like knee deep in the mission drift and, and how people get sideways on stuff and prioritize things that shouldn't be sitting at the top, but you know, are levels down on priority and mission. Sometimes as leaders, you know, we can be the object of people's, you know, bad attitudes and criticism and gossip. And sometimes it's like, you know, all of that builds up and pretty soon the people aren't, you're not holding them in your heart. They're getting on your nerves. 
And this is just such a good reminder from the Apostle Paul. It reminds us, of course, of the high priest in the Old Testament who had that ephod, right? That, that breastplate that was made of, of gold and there were 12 stones on it, one stone for each of the tribes of, of Israel. And God had that breastplate placed over the heart of the high priest because he always wanted the people to be on the hearts of the leader. He always wanted the leader to remember that this is a relational thing where, you know, the purpose of the high priest was to hold the people deeply within his heart. And I don't think that that's a responsibility that's reserved for just the high priest or the deacon or, or the overseer. I think what Paul is saying to us in these verses and God is speaking to us is we should be holding one another in our hearts, in our hearts. That means that we have to make space, people, because the, the culture we live in, the pace that we, we operate by, the technology that we're constantly under the influence of, push, it fills our life so much, it pushes all the space away. We don't have time and space for people. We don't have, we don't have room in our hearts for people because our hearts are filled with so many other things. Let's make sure, let's make sure we make the space. I think if you receive grace, it will inspire you to make space for people. If you receive the grace of God, like if you've experienced truly God's grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, the fullness of what God has, right? We have been made partakers of the heavenly blessings, Every blessing in the heavenly places belongs to us because we're in Christ. God has taken the full riches of heaven and placed them in our lives because we've been saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God has just been that good to us. The grace of God. God destroys the world, but he spares Noah, grace. Jericho is utterly destroyed, but Rahab, the prostitute, is preserved, grace. David, the shepherd boy, is selected by God to be the next king, grace. David fails his calling, murders Uriah the Hittite, because he had an adulterous relationship with his wife Bathsheba, David's restored grace. Saul of Tarsus is terrorizing the church. He's on the road to Damascus, traveling long distances with letters from the Sanhedrin to pull Christians back to Jerusalem to stand trial and probably for some to lose their life. He is met on the road to Damascus. He is confronted by the resurrected Jesus Christ. He is forgiven and he is called and commissioned and that, my brothers and sisters, is grace. Paul says it like this. He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display 
his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And that's not just Paul, that is you and that is me. And when we become recipients of God's grace, the overflow in our life is joy. It is joy. And grace not only secures our relationship with God, but grace transforms and changes us so that we become a contrast community. I just want to close by saying this. You know, the world should be able to look at the church and see something different. The world should be able to look at the believer um, who is going through not just high times of abundance and prosperity, but also through the difficulty of the valley of the shadow of death and times of want and need. And the unbelieving person should see this, this contentment, this overflow of joy because of our love relationship with God, because of how we have sought to exalt him and make his name great, because we have joined in his mission and we're pursuing the advancement of his kingdom here on this earth as it is in heaven. And when you and I choose to live like that, the unsatisfied world will discover that the true thing that satisfied is found right among the people of God. His name is Jesus.